Well, good morning. And happy Mother's Day. How about this text for our Mother's Day text? It's a good one. It's a good one. No, um, obviously this is not a Mother's Day text. This is a text for all saints. It is a difficult text. And as I was sitting there earlier, I was thinking, you know, the hardest part, at least for me, I can't speak for every pastor, of a sermon is the moment between the pew and the pulpit. It's one of the hardest moments. The, the, the several steps I have to take between there and here, I have to make a decision. Am I going to preach God's word for God's people? And believe it or not, if it was just up to me, this would not be the text I would have chosen. It would not be the text. Rams, goats, destruction, seemingly no hope given. Who wants to preach a message like that to people who want hope? Who wants to preach a message about destruction in the middle of a pandemic? In my own human self and desire, I would have ran clear from this text. I would have chosen something nice and pretty. But it would be cruel. It would be cruel to not tell the truth even when the truth doesn't fit our desires. It would be cruel. So with that being said, let me pray, and then we will dive directly into this text because there's a lot to cover. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that we as saints can come to you as sons and daughters and call you Father. You've given us that great privilege, the one who is sovereign over all things, the judge of all the earth. We, because of the spirit in us, can cry out, Abba, Father. And we come to your throne room now, the throne that is for us a throne of grace. And we ask, Lord, that you do what only your sovereign hand can do, and that is to attend to the preaching of your word May your spirit, O oh Lord, flow through this room into each and every one of our hearts, whether it be through the sermon alone or the sacraments or the singing or the sweet fellowship, O oh Lord, allow us not to leave this place untouched and unchanged. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as I said, this is a difficult text. Um, I wanted to have the entire text read, but it's not an easy text to read. And if you're anything like me, hearing a person read 23, 26, 27 verses, could, you, you don't really get the, the feel. You sort of zonk out. Um, so we'll be covering the entire chapter, the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 8. So a little introduction. We come again to a vision. Remember in our pre previous two sermons in Daniel, where there was this vision that God gave to Daniel. Um, but in chapter seven, it was in the first year of King Belshazzar. Here in chapter eight, it's in the third year of King Belshazzar. And if you remember in chapter five, we saw, we met King Belshazzar, we saw his end, but there was a period of at least three years in which wasn't covered in that, in that particular chapter. 
And though Daniel is mostly silent in chapter 5, he actually is, he is apparently quite busy dealing with Yahweh and his agenda for his So chapter 7 and chapter 8 are those, that in-between period where Daniel is dealing with these tremendous visions given to him by God, these tremendous, terrifying visions. And maybe this is the reason Daniel is so bold with Belshazzar. I mean, who wouldn't be bold before men when they've been before God? And on Belshazzar's last night, Daniel was able to look the king squarely in the face. Again, he's telling this to a king and utter these words. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And the chapter ends in chapter 5, that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. A great picture of how kingdoms come and the kingdoms go. Right there in the picture of the king. And what emboldened Daniel to say that? I would say it was these visions. I would say it is these visions of the future. Even though terrifying, they're filled with hope. And the reality that in the end, despite massive religious setbacks, horrendous persecutions, long drawn out exiles, and bold attempts to undo God's people, the recurring theme in Daniel is this, in the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. It's a recurring theme. It's been pressed home to our senses in a variety of ways, and chapter 8 is no exception. Except here, as I said before, this is a very sober we don't get the, 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 the great son of man coming to the ancient of days and sitting on the throne and all the dominions of the earth worshiping him and being given over to him. We don't get that picture here in Daniel. It is a promised bleak future to add salt to the wound. There's no escaping it. And even more, there seems to be little to no reference to a victorious outcome for the saints. But when we look closer at the text, you will see that behind the dark veil of his future, suffering, future suffering is an almighty God orchestrating the events of history and advancing his kingdom. It is a mercy that God would tell us beforehand what we are to prepare for. Revelation, not the book, but the reality that God reveals things to us. Revelation is a mercy and a grace in and of itself. The book that you read, the book that we have here, the book in which we base our faith and practice is a mercy to you. Chapter 8 of Daniel is a mercy. It's a grace. It's not a terror. So what's the big point of Daniel 8? Just to jump straight into it. Well, as I said before, it's important that we know. A little echoey, a little echoey. It's important for God's people to know and prepare for what they will face. Not only near the end, which is the point of chapter 7, but also along the way, which is the point of chapter 8. But here is the secret, and we will flush this out more as the sermon goes on. Suffering does not threaten the advancement of God's kingdom. Nor is the gospel simply a reactionary response to thwart and stop suffering. 
No, and here is the kicker. Suffering is God's kingdom-building and sanctifying agenda. It's part of his agenda. And how we suffer with endurance and praise becomes a very apologetic of our faith. It becomes a very defense of our faith. As we see in 1 Peter, Peter tells those exiles, those suffering in exile, to always be prepared to give a defense for your faith. And what he's saying there is not always be prepared to argue with somebody. No, the assumption is people are going to be asking them, what is the hope that is in you? So something must exude from our lives before words ever are said. And we see this in seed form in Daniel. But it grows into a mighty oak tree of doctrinal, soul-sustaining truth in the New Testament. And that, I believe, is the big point of Daniel. He wants to soberly disciple us for the long haul. He wants to forewarn us to fortify us. He wants to forewarn us to fortify us. And he does this in two ways. God steadies his people to walk through the course of history. And secondly, God forearms his people to face the crisis of history. Let me say that again. He steadies his people to walk through the course of history. And secondly, God forearms his people to face the crisis or the crises of history. So let's, again, let's gather our bearings. It's been, a, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Daniel, and the previous two sermons in Daniel were in Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to be saying some things that are going to sound like they're contradicting things that Craig said. So me and Craig had to have this talk. <laughs> I want to make sure we weren't contradicting each other. So there in chapter 7, you remember all these great beasts are wrecking havoc in the world, right? We have four of those beasts. And then we have the great picture of the Ancient of Days being approached by one like the Son of Man, and the Ancient of Days gives over the kingdom to this singular individual. And there in Daniel chapter 7, it, we, we learn that those beasts don't represent particularly or specifically specific kingdoms, but they are the spirit of those kingdoms. The spirit of those kingdoms. Well, when you read Daniel chapter 8, you see a different set of beasts, but these beasts are actually interpreted as specific beasts, as specific nations, should I say, in kingdoms. And we need to, we need to and this is, what I, this is where I want to make sure we don't run into any confusion. Daniel chapter 7 is looking beyond Daniel, looking beyond even us to that great day of the second coming of Christ. Daniel chapter 8 is looking simply a mere 400 years past Daniel, Daniel's day, to a specific group of people and a specific suffering and persecution that they will endure. But let's also not forget this. Even though Daniel chapter 7 comes before Daniel chapter 8, that central picture of the Son of Man being given over the kingdoms of the world and ruling over those kingdoms even though we don't hear that in Daniel chapter 8, it is still a reality in Daniel 8. It's still a reality. So chapter 7 is the cosmic view of history. Chapter 8 is more specific and particular view of history. 
And so this is how the chapter can break down. Verses 1 through 8 are interpreted by verses 20 through 23. And chapters and verses 9 through 19 are interpreted in verses 20 through 26. It simply goes as that. So with this simple structure, let's begin. God steadies his people to walk through the course of history. The first beast that we meet is this ram. Daniel's vision meets a ram with two horns. He, go, he then goes to describe this ram in further detail. He has two horns, one that's longer than the other, and he continues to look, and this ram begins swiftly running across the known world. It says, budding westward, northward, and eastward, wreaking havoc. This beast is, seems conquering and un conquerable. And as as the text says, no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. And such is the way of all tyrants. Such is the beginning of the end for them as well. As the proverb says, pride goes before the fall. And a little caveat, I think, it's in order. Isn't it a sad thing? No, it's actually a contradiction of the highest degree. When Christians, though we're not tyrants, when Christians' lives reflect more of this ram-like mentality, do as we please and magnify ourselves, more than a Christ-like mentality, which is, and he humbled himself by becoming a servant, even to the point of death. Though we don't hold such power as to wreak havoc and cause massive damage, this reality, this reality of always magnifying ourselves and doing as we please, it crouches at the door of our hearts. As God told told Cain, that sin always crouches at the door of your heart, ready to take hold of you, ready to conquer you. And what did he say? You must learn to master it. And the New Testament says more, by the God's Spirit, we must begin to put to death the deed of the body. Now we continue on. Verse 20 gives us the interpretation of this ram. This ram represents Persia, the text says, the Persian Empire and their dominance. And we meet, actually, the beginning of that Persian Empire in chapter 6 of Daniel, where we meet Darius. That's where his reign begins. And then chapter 9 picks up where 6 left off. Again, Persian reign. But as Daniel often reminds us, it is God alone who removes kings and establishes kings. Persia will fall. So then who do we meet? We meet the goat in the text. The Persian ram comes into contact with the Greek goat. We learn from verse 21 that the goat represents Greece in this instance. And this Greek goat plows into the Persian ram, smashing and mashing in a sort of blitzkrieg style. So fast the text actually says he was moving as though his feet weren't touching the ground. Swiftly, just like the wind, going across the known world, wreaking havoc. And this goat and this ram, they, they meet, and they, the, the goat charges the ram, and the goat wins. And now, if you've never seen two horned animals fight, this picture won't hit your senses in the way it's meant to. So do me a favor. If you haven't, go home, 
Google, not Google, YouTube, two rams fighting and listen to the clash, how violent it is, how violent this scene is. Now, what do we learn from this battle? The male, the male goat wins. He wins. And he magnifies himself. And this time the text says he exceedingly magnifies himself. There's almost this exponential growth in pride with each passing kingdom. Earthly kingdoms never learn the lesson of history. They never learn the lesson. It's almost obnoxious how often this world doesn't learn the lesson. How obnoxious when we don't learn the lesson. There's, there's only one who rules, only one who reigns. Any attempt to undo that is always thwarted. And from history, we, it's almost unanimous that this first king of this goat empire proves to be Alexander the Great. But like the other kingdom, he doesn't have a lasting tenure. He himself is broken. Verse Ed says that. We learn this because in around 323 B.C., his empire is divided into four other horns, four other kingdoms. We see that in verse 8, and it's interpreted in verse 22. And these other horns, these other kingdoms are listed as such. It was given over to four of his generals, Cassander over Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus, don't really say that, over Thrace in Asia Minor, and Seleucus over Syria, Mesopotamia, and then lastly Ptolemy over in Egypt. These are the four horns that were divvied out to the four kingdoms that were ruled and run by Alexander the Great. And we see that picture whenever the, 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 the horn, the, the, the Greek goat, smashes into the ram. And lastly, whenever the ram is defeated, or the goat is defeated, and its single horn is split into four. That's the picture we have here. Now, there are some lessons that we can learn from that swift run-through, Daniel, in those verses. Well, first, Daniel's vision depicts a turbulent and extended time in history. Consider verse 4 for a moment. Notice what it says. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and nor the beast could stand before him nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. We read that verse already. But do you realize that nearly 200 years of history are compressed into that one verse? 200 years of history are compressed in that one verse of political turmoil and strife. Now, there's no way Daniel could have known in that particular moment how much time was crunched into that little scene. But what he did see is a fast-paced script of conquering kingdoms coming to their demise. They're anything but peaceful. Nations are fragile entities. They're fragile. And this is where the people of God have to live. This is where you and I have to live, in this fragile world. This is our story. This is our address. And how often must this be repeated? Every sermon that we've preached so far in Daniel has come with the same theme. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. We ought not, we dare not, even though we struggle not to, put our hope in this life. That's the constant battle of the Christian. 
So over and over again, put our hope in this life to try to find a place in this world that's going to comfort us and sustain us. But it just doesn't happen. This world, whatever nation you're from, whatever nation you live in, it does not have the tools in its tool belt to bring in the kingdom. It does not have the tools in its tool belt to bring in the peace and the joy that is promised. It just doesn't. Well, Daniel's vision also portrays an instructive and humbling history. We look at verse 4 again. Imagine that you don't know the outcome. Imagine you're watching this vision as Daniel is. The Persian empire, Persian ram, would look untouchable and unstoppable, and you would be shocked to see that the ruler of the known world is turned into dust. You'd be shocked. And what about the Greek goat? You'd be shocked also that though he wasn't conquered by another force, he too was seen to be mortal. Nations are not impervious to destruction. Sometimes they get knocked off, other times they simply run out of steam. And here's an illustration to drive that point home. Well, in the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials, October 16, 1946, there were several executions of Nazi celebrities. Fourteen bodies included those of, listening to the names, Goring, who actually committed suicide, Ribbentrop, Keitel, Rosenberg, Frank, Stryker, Jodl, and Seiss Inquart, where they were all delivered to Munich crematoriums. That same, that same evening, a container holding the ashes were driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. And after an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped and the ashes were poured into a muddy ditch. Five or six years prior to that, these 14 men, these men, would have dominated and intimidated anybody. But here, Simply a night drizzle washed him away. Ponder that. Men who held other men and women in terror wreaked havoc. All it took was a quick fire and some water to wash them away. So goes all kingdoms. So goes all tyrants. All this history, and we should know that history is important, also calls for a sober and durable discipleship. Daniel is aware, to state the obvious, that he's in exile currently as he's looking at the vision. And you find that out in chapter 9, that he prays in the midst of being in the vision. He's actually wrestling with the fact that soon and very soon that they're going to come out of exile and go back into the promised land. But then God gives Daniel this vision of not a peaceful future. Think about that. The end of their exile is getting ready to happen. You would think there'd be great joy and there should be. But then right there, God says, I'm going to give you further revelation beyond the exile and beyond your entry into the promised land, more turbulence is going to happen. More trouble is going to happen. 
Getting back to the promised land does not mean the kingdom of God will appear. And that's what we're tasked with for us. We are tasked with living out our faith in a world that hates God and under circumstances that make it more difficult with each passing generation to live out our faith. We are tasked with with continuing on, counting on the sovereignty of God to sustain us day by day, generation by generation, crisis by crisis. And that is the big punchline of Daniel. God's agenda is never, ever in jeopardy. It's never in jeopardy. This truth prepares us for the long haul of life in a fallen world. But we don't like quick fixes, don't we? We like quick fixes. We prefer quick fixes, should I say. Political band-aids on bleeding spiritual wounds. Pain pills over a surgeon's knife. We aren't exactly thrilled with the idea of leaving the next day the next generation, let alone the next crisis up to the agenda of God. What is this agenda? Well, he promises to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Work all things for good to those that love him. You know what we have a a hard time with? Trusting that when God says all things, he means all things. All things. What are you suffering with right now? Is that outside of God's reign? Is that outside of his rule? Is that outside of his love? All things. Nothing escapes that in the Christian's life. (laughs) Nothing. It is through these bumps and jumps and lumps of history that we are to prove faithful and in which God is working in us an eternal weight of glory. So we see that God steadies us to walk through the course of history. Now God forearms us, forearms his people to face the crisis of history. This is verses 9 through 19, which is interpreted 23 through 26. Now this is where it gets a little more specific. There's a lot, a lot of history that, that could be talked about, so many things. But I want to get to the important things and not bore you or confuse you with the details. As I said, um, verse 19 focuses specifically on a specific individual, this little horn. Remember that in, if you read through Daniel chapter 8, those four horns, and out of those four horns, one of those the smallest of them all, actually rises to prominence. And that's, the, that's what Daniel 8 is mainly focused on, this one particular individual. As it said in verse 9, out of one of them came forth a rather small, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the west, toward the beautiful land, which is Jerusalem. Now, this verb grew great, we've mentioned before, that we've seen it grew great. It's also seen in the word, he magnified himself occurred only, only once for Persia, once for Greece, and then four times for this little horn, which, press, which presses home to our senses that this is an arrogant son of a gun. This is an arrogant son of a gun. This singular individual exudes an arrogance like none other, and here's how. 
in that arrogance, he opposes God. Verse 11, it being this little, little horn, it magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. In other words, he considered himself to be godlike. Secondly, he eradicates worship, verse 11b through 12. And it removed the regular sacrifices from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And thus an army will be set over the daily offering in an act of rebellion, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Thirdly, he will crush God's people. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. This was the havoc that this little horn was going to wreak on the world and on God's people. Now, I can't help to point out a measure of hope that Daniel must have had, in, even in this vision, in the midst of such dark, of a dark scene. Now, notice, Daniel is in exile in Babylon as he's seeing the future. But notice where he sees himself in the future, the place where the regular sacrifices are back. They're in the beautiful land. The hope is this, that they are actually going to worship God again. That they're going to be back in the land, that they're going to serve God and offer sacrifices to God and experience the forgiveness of God. There's a measure of hope even in that, even if beyond that, there's going to be destruction. But then there's a dark side even to that and a mystery. The horn will throw truth to the earth, and it will succeed. How's that for a headline? So-and-so throws truth to the earth, and he actually succeeds. And that 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 should, in our senses, raise a question for us, a big question. Why on earth does sin get to crush God's people? Why does evil seem to have free reign to walk all over Christ's body, his church? Does the why ring in your ears? Why? Why must we suffer? Why won't God stop it all? I'm sure you've asked that. I'm sure you've prayed that. I'm even more sure you've felt that. Well, verse 13 challenges that question. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a, a holy one speaking, and another one, another holy one said to that particular holy one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the, and the host to be trampled? You hear a question the angels are asking? They aren't preoccupied with the why, they simply ask, How long? And if you read your Bible well, and if you heard what it was read in Revelation, and if you read through the Psalms, what is the cry of the saints in their suffering? They cry out, how long? Heaven here is taking up the concern and the cry of the saints on earth. That is what's amazing that this text, and Daniel as a whole, as much suffering as they endured, Not once do you hear the question, why? Not once do you hear that question. It's not a bad question. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. 
But it's amazing the questions that the Bible asks that we often don't ask. The cries, how long, O Lord? And what is the answer? Here's where there is some debate, and there's, I don't want to get so caught up in, again, the details of this, but we will, we have to tackle it because the text says it. The answer, how long, is this. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly, your text says, restored. That's, that's a good, my text says it too, and, but a better translation would be vindicated. Vindicated. That the holy place, the temple is going to be vindicated. Now, let's not be mesmerized at first with this 2,300 evenings and mornings that we missed the important part. Again, as I said, the how long it's the how long the cries of the saints is taken up into heaven. Heaven has the concerns that you have. It does. In the same way, whenever a sinner repents, what does heaven do? It rejoices. It rejoices. It rejoices. It enters into our joy. We enter into its joy, and it enters into our suffering. But we have to deal with this figure number, figure 2300. So what do we do with it? It can be taken taken two ways, two. So one, since the regular sacrifice was offered up twice a day, then that number, 2,100 sacrifices, is actually, you split it in half, 1,150 days. It could be that. Or it could be simply 2,300 days. The first would equate to roughly six years and four months, and the latter would, um, I'm sorry, the first would equal around three years, the latter six years, four months. That's, that's the, if you want to know how much time that's, this, this was going to last, it was roughly around those time periods, three years, six years, four months. Whatever the meaning may be, the figure tells us that this persecution was going to be a long one, yet the very fact that it's calculated in days means it is a limited one. It's not going to last forever. And as I said before, the temple was going to be vindicated. I like that. Not just brick upon brick, mortar in between. Not just that, but vindicated. Doesn't, it, doesn't that reek or smell of Easter morning? That the temple was, was going to be destroyed, but I'm going to rebuild it in days. Vindicated. Meaning, God's truth was going to, was going to prevail. And God was going to, be see, going to be seen as righteous and holy again. That's a foretaste of resurrection, hope, and power, even right there in Daniel. Now, I want to go back to this, the question that was asked at the beginning. The difference difference between asking why and asking how long. And, And I want to make sure you understand that to ask the question why is not a sin. And I'm not saying that to ask the question how long is the only question that she should be asking in suffering. We get the questions why in the Bible. But there is a rebuke here, I think. Maybe it's just a slight one. 
to be preoccupied with the whys of life, sometimes they become more accusations against God and occasions to distrust Him and His will. To pitch our tents in the realm of the unknown mysteries of God's will by incessantly asking why can do more damage to our faith than the suffering itself. Well, the cry, how long? I think in this question, faith buds maybe even more. It seems to assume that if there is a beginning, then there must be an end. And it seems to assume that if there is a sovereign God, the end is in his hands. The end is in his hands. So who is this little horn? Who is this little horn? Well, from extracurricular readings, outside sources such as Maccabees, it is almost unanimously assumed and said that it is Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. He is this little horn, this obscure one that, that rises from the ranks of obscure to one that wreaks the most havoc in Israel. Here are some of the things that he did. He looted the temple of Jerusalem. Then he sent a tax collector named Apollonius to Jerusalem to pillage, massacre, and ruin Jerusalem. Then Antiochus insisted on a forced paganization program, all meant to corrupt every aspect of Israel's faith and practice. That's what he did. And if you read history, he, it was extremely horrendous. Imagine, imagine if guards came in here and took us all out and then replaced this with its own altar and then began sacrificing all types of bloody, disgusting things to turn this place of worship into a place of bloodshed. That's, that's, that's the picture that, that we should see that it actually was seen with Antiochus. So why, do we, why does the text spend so much time on a minor figure? in the roster of history. Well, it is necessary because he wasn't so minor. Never before had God's people faced a persecution designed to eradicate every trace of Israel's faith, worship, and life. That's why Daniel is given detailed prophetic vision. There will be a day when Israel will need this revelation. That's why, that's, that's, that's the assumption, verse 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. This revelation will have relevance down the line. Let me give a brief illustration on, on why and how, why it's important to receive this revelation beforehand and how it actually prepares. And I don't mean to be trite here. I don't, I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but I think it helps. So for those of you who have played sports, you wouldn't know this if you ever had to watch film. I played football, and I had to watch film often. Film of games that we play, but pr primarily for our illustration, films of other teams to prepare for games. So that's what we would do. You, we would sit for hours watching this team that we have not played yet, and we would watch them so well that we, that we would know if they lined up this way or they did this thing or that thing, we know what's coming. It prepared us for the battle. That's what it did. 
There was going to come a point in the game in which I was going to need, in a sense, that revelation. And that's what Scripture does for us. That's what this text is doing for Israel. That's what revelation does for us. It gives us an upper hand so that when the time comes for us to be faithful, we have something to cling to. And that's what Jesus does, doesn't he? John 16. After telling them that the world is going to hate them and all the various ways in which they're going to suffer persecution, he says, I tell you these things so that you will not fall away. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So, I think there's a big question that we, that we often ask. And I'm not entering into a season or a time in a sermon where I'm going to be apologetic. It means defend in great big philosophical terms. This question, well, why suffer at all? Why suffer at all? We just read a text in which God is preparing us to suffer. That's, that's what he's doing. He's preparing us to suffer, and he wants us to suffer well. Well, why suffer even to begin with? And I feel like this has been a running theme lately amongst us, amongst us pastors, amongst us. This question of what is the function of suffering in the Christian life? Because you cannot read the Bible without coming across suffering. And it explodes in the New Testament. Paul's doctrine and theology of suffering in the Christian faith. And I was asked at the, at the collaborative, I was speaking with one of the pastors, and I was telling them about, about this sermon. And he asked me my, my main point, so I told him. And then he asked me, I told him about the idea of suffering and all this. He said, well, what's, what's the answer? So I told him, he said, so you're telling me the answer to suffering is just wait till it's over. Just wait till it's over? That's the answer? And I was like, no. <laughs> but don't we treat suffering that way? We just bury, bury our heads, grit our teeth, and say, I'm just going to wait till it's over. That's, the on, that's the, our only use of suffering is to avoid it. Or to wait. Now, waiting is important. There is a sense in which we should wait. But again, the New Testament gives more. And a few, a few verses will, will show this. First of our own Savior. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. What does this teach us? Worldly kingdom, fight to avoid crosses. Christ's kingdom, suffer and take up your cross. It's part of his kingdom. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of salvation 
The world says of suffering, suffering thwarts blessing. Christ's suffering was a means to learning obedience. It's flipping, it's, it's flipping suffering on its head, the way we view it at least. Of us, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery and ordeal among you which comes upon you for testing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't we often treat suffering as a strange thing? Something out of the ordinary? Peter says, don't be surprised. It's not a strange thing. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. The world says suffering is an enemy of joy. Christ says that suffering is a friend of joy. And lastly, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is on your to-do list? Is one of those, I want to attain the, the fellowship of his sufferings? The world says suffering leads to death. Christ says suffering leads to life. Blips it on its head. That should be paradigm shifting, earth shattering. That God in his sovereignty would use suffering in such a way that our Bible says it prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. That without it, you wouldn't be able to bear the glory of heaven. Without it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll end here. As we prepare ourselves to come to this table, there is going to be a day there is going to be a day when you and I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Revelation said in our text, that he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. But when you factor in the ascension, when you factor in the fact that he went up into heaven with his body, that breath still fills his lungs, bones still hold up his body, Blood still flows through his veins. This is, the, this is Jesus. And you will hear his voice wiping away all your tears from your eyes, but you will come to him with your wounds. The many, 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 many wounds you have and that you will have. And you will show him your wounds and he will say to you, I have wounds too. I have wounds too. Isn't it amazing that he kept his wounds? That the hand that wipes away your tears will have nail marks in them? That's how we're going to taste eternity. And that's how we're going to bear the glory of heaven. Amen.